0: Welcome to the Gossip Podcast with Anthony Goss, triathlete, teacher, coach, and all around humble individual. Live streaming to the BRT athletes and audience around the world. The Gossip Podcast is designed to inspire, motivate, and educate you on all things triathlon training and racing. Because we know you just can't get enough of it. So, wherever you're listening on a ride, run, in your car, or sipping on a cold one in a jacuzzi, settle in and please welcome your gossip host, Anthony Goss. This podcast is in no way endorsed by Beckworth Racing, unless it's an absolutely cracking episode, in which case we'll happily take the credit and full licensing rights.
1: And welcome to the Gossip Podcast number three. Today's guest is a local legend, probably we could even say a national or international legend. He has been around for nearly 40 years, and not only has he done over 600 triathlons, which has included nine Hawaii Ironmans, but he has also competed locally for football and cricket. We would like to welcome our third guest Mick Varker. Welcome Mick and thank you for having this chat with me today. Thanks Gussie uh, I'm honoured to be here and have a chat to you about all this stuff. So Mick you've been uh, in the sport of triathlon for 40 years but let's go right back to the start. Where were you born and what happened in your early life?
2: I was born in a um, in the Carton Women's Hospital in Melbourne. I lived as a kid in Burwood um, and I was very, very keen on football and cricket. They were my major sports back then. So I followed that for a while, ended up playing at a high level in both sports. Had a bit of a dab in um, martial arts at the same time. So I was actually doing football, cricket and martial arts, which sent me sideways into some boxing. Uh, fought in the police games. And um, martial arts was I fought in bare-knuckle fights here and in other countries won three national titles, and uh, basically took that up to keep myself fit in the off-season to football. And uh, then it became probably one of the major sports of my life for some time where I ran a a number of dojos and I still currently run a combat school to this day.
1: I was just about to say that I do know that you do still run a combat school um, and you have a few athletes going through that as well.
2: Yeah, this is a—it's a mix of everything I've done, combination of boxing, Muay Thai, wrestling, um, ground fighting. So, but I base it under the umbrella of a health and fitness lifestyle thing, rather than trying to um, get myself the next UFC champion. We're not trying to do that. We don't want anyone to get hurt. We want people to be happy and healthy, and I model it off that more so than a lifestyle than. Um, Having thugs that can go around in the neighbourhood and beat people up—that's not what I'm after.
1: I think that's what some people think about when they hear about MMA or ultimate fighting or kickboxing. Anything that—that it is very a violent sport, but you can actually get a lot of health and fitness out of it as well if it's done correctly, like you're saying.
2: Correct. Well, my oldest student is 75 years of age, so
1: <laughs> he's a good lad. So just a little bit older than you. About um, yeah, a little bit. We'll move on. <laughs> <laughs> we'll move on. You've also played uh, football and cricket at quite a high level as well. This is some things I didn't even know about. You have only known you as a triathlete or a cyclist, but I didn't know that you played cricket and football at such a high level and won so many premierships. Yeah, well, I suppose that's lucky that you're in a, in a
2: team that, that's good enough and skillful enough to have the opportunity to, to play in it. So I'm very lucky that I have played in those teams. There's people play football all their life and cricket and never win a final. So to have an opportunity not only to win one but win half a dozen in each and and uh, be involved in that team sport during your life is a fantastic thing. So I've been lucky to play it in the VFA, which was the Victorian Football Association. It was a second highest level to, to VFL back in the day. Um, it was pretty rough and tumble, uh, very hard football, stop prop and hit. Uh, a lot of fights, <laughs> and uh, you know, it was um, but it was something that
1: I I cherish that I I have done, and if I had my time over again, I'd do it again. Yeah, playing team sports is a great thing for your life as well because you get to learn how to communicate with other people, but you get get some great friendships out of it as well. And I think that what we're finding with Beckworth Racing is that we're trying to have that sort of same thing as well that you know build a team community. Instead of just saying it's an individual sport and, like yourself, coming from those team sports does help.
2: Yeah, the one thing I've found, um, the thing I do like about Adam, and I've known him and raced against him since he was 14 years old, but he actually does model his his team and his coaches and the the sport based on that. So he, he opens up his arms and his doors to allow anyone of any background to come in and do this sport. So he's not pertain to that 1% elite, if you want to lose weight, get fit and healthy and just race at your own level and compete against your own last best time, then the door is open for anyone to do that with Adam. He's got a great demeanour. He's a really good bloke. He treats everyone as equals and uh, that's the thing I
1: really like about him. He's got a great setup at the moment. Yes, it's going very well. So we've talked about your early sporting career. I've also known that you were in the police force for a long time. But again, reading your letter that you've sent to me, or a few of the questions you've answered, you've had a quite varied sort of jobs as well.
2: Yeah, I have. I've, um, I've been in st- uh, state police and the federal police. So in the state police, I did the old general duties, and then branched off into a few task forces. Um, I had uh, and pretty well a good general um, overview of policing. I've had a good good background and in. Um, various places in the police, so I got a good understanding of how it runs. And then I I left VicPol and went into the Fed, so I was at the airport for a couple of years running a shift out there of counter-terrorist first-response officers. I um, I did an overseas posting in Port Moresby, the Australian High Commission. I won the inspector spot in Jakarta, and after the Bali bombings, I decided that it was a bit too dangerous. The terrorism started to kick in. I wasn't happy with the way the security was there, so I bailed out of that and I went sideways into the air marshals. So I travelled the world wow. travelled the world for 12 years carrying a gun in and out of other countries, so much so that I ended up instructing on courses and a number of the students who were on my courses were ex-military commandos and SAS troopers and also police from every tactical group in the country. So um, that would be the job that I had there would be the best job that I've ever had and I'll never have another job as good as that. It was like being like James Bond, the real one.
1: Not the actor. Varker, Mick Varker, 006. (laughs) Uh, And you've also worked as a Garbo, Um, owned a couple of bottle shops as well. But I think most people do know you as that, working in the police force and the federal, the feds and an air marshal as well. So they're really quite interesting jobs. So I'm currently a what they call a police custody officer. So my job is to look after
2: people who are locked up in a police jail and I'm running in the jail down at the Geelong Police Station, which is very interesting because we end up in lots of scraps and we get abused and, you know, you get faeces and urine thrown at, you, you get spat on and punched and kicked. Um, so it's, it's a very dangerous job in comparison to what I have had in the previous years. And it it's a sad indictment on our society that, that people uh, get themselves into those positions, and unfortunately, they end up uh, probably taking the path that puts them back in jail or, or in jail for the first time, and
1: they're on that long road. It's very sad. It is very sad, and um, we're lucky that we have had yourself in the police force in that sort of for a long, long time. Um, but it's yeah, it's very hard out there for some people too. At the tough same job. time, very tough job. Yeah, that's uh, the, the latest
2: um, round of uh, this ice. is It's it's destroying the fabric of the community and it's tearing families apart. It is a terrible
1: drug. It's ripping them apart. So it's sad. Yeah. yeah, I see it as a as a school teacher. Um, you see what can happen to people that do get on it at a young age, and it is quite sad. And it's a very big downward spiral when they do take.
2: And it's very addictive. So it's a terrible, terrible drug.
1: Yes. No good. Well, we'll move on to a a happier topic. (laughs) (laughs) So, as I said in the intro, you've done 600 triathlons. Let's go back to 1983. Yes. um,
2: 1983 (laughs) was a year that um, I've always looked for new challenges along the way. So I went down to the very first Endurathon they had in Geelong, and that's where they used to do laps around the garden. So you had to have a lap counter sitting on the back of a truck counting your laps on the bike. So it was, it was pretty bizarre. <laughs> so we swam in the bay, we did laps around there and then we did laps running. So you, your lap counter had to stay there and count your laps on the bike and running. Um, having said that, riding around and around that inner circuit, if if you've run it or ridden it before, it's, it is a tough little circuit. So it's not the first lap that's hard, it's the last yeah. one.
1: Well, it's my. I did my first ever duathlon with the Dandenong Triathlon Club there in 1998. Yeah. So you'll know how tough it is. It might have been 97, yeah, and it was a full lap course, and you go down yeah. and that little yeah. rise at the back, and then coming around, it's the, tough. And the the run's not no, easy either.
2: It's not. Um, so I, just, I saw that and thought, "Hmm, there's a challenge. I'm gonna, I'm gonna do that next year." I trained up for it. Well, I don't even know what I was doing training, but I was, I was just doing a swim, ride, run here and there, and Decided to go in it, um, got the bug immediately and then I applied for my first Hawaiian Ironman the year after that. So you didn't have to qualify. You only had to tick the box as an alien. That was what we were called aliens because we were non-Americans. So, uh, And if you put your application early enough, you, you got in. So I entered the next two or three or four of those under that alien system and got got in without any qualification but then around that 86 87 they started qualif- yet to do the qualification races so or qualify at, uh, at other ironman or or get a top 3 in your age group somewhere which i, I did when i went to a couple of other countries qualified in thailand qualified in japan and qualified in new zealand in those Ironmans. so so it started to get harder and harder and harder people get quicker and quicker and um, you know even us old bastards skip along a alright And there's some quick fella, young, young old blokes around
1: at the moment. And I think people nowadays don't know the old the qualifying process for Hawaii back in the late '90s or even the '90s and early thousands, where you actually had to go and qualify for Foster for the Ironman at Shepparton or another half Ironman. So it's really you really had to qualify twice. You did generally. You
2: it was pro rata of how many were in your age group,
1: so there might be
2: six or eight in one age group, but You know, with mine, it was probably one, two or three. So you had to pretty well finish top three to get yourself a spot unless there was a roll down. So they used to have that roll down phase as well. So if the bloke that won it's already done it, not going to go back, he'd hand that in and then the next – it'd roll down to the next person if you're lucky. But it was
1: luck. Uh, So your first Hawaii man was Uh, in 1984. I was born Uh, that
2: year. So I did uh, – the 84 was – I was the first one from Geelong to do it. And there was another girl by the name of Dora in Burgoyne who did it as well. So we became friends out of that. Then the next year, Stewie come onto the scene, Greg Stewart. So so, so I started great. training with Greg, you know, uh, and trained with him for many, many years. That's where I really got my grounding from, training with this bloke because he was a gun. Um, so Greg, Greg, I think in that yeah. first year, he got 15th. second year, he got uh, fifth. And his third year, he got third. The fourth year, he was going to win it. For some reason, he um, he started – never eaten a power bar before, and he started eating a power bar and the rod, uh, knocked his guts to pieces, and he ended up having to pull out. But, boy, was he in good nick that year. He was – yeah. I, oh, really? Is that the year 1988 I might, or 89? 88. It was 88 book. or 89. But, you know, he was in, in good enough condition to win yep. that, and he was rated – the fastest runner off the bike in triathlons in the world in every distance. So
1: he was very, very good. And this is, um, again, thanks for bringing this up because people don't, you know, people that are new to the sport, um, there's not much you can look up history and knowing about Greg Shorts. we're lucky enough to have Greg come down and talk to at one of our lawn camps. Um, and Greg did speak about you in the early, in the late 80s and the, when you were training together and things like that. But the fine history on Greg's a bit hard because he's in that legend circle they've yeah. got down the footy club there, but people don't realise how good Greg was, or was, or still is. He's still quite an amazing athlete.
2: Well, when I was, uh, see, I probably won about forty pro races, but I used to ring Greg and say, "Where are you going this weekend?" And he'd say, "I'm going to Melbourne." So I'd say, "Well, I'm going up to Hamilton." So I'd win some of those country races around <laughs> Lake Fines and Hamilton, Hamilton to uh, Penzhurst. I raced well at Warnable. I did a raced at Portland, ran clinics with Greg down there and there was races that I had on my day where I could catch him on the bike and put time into him. But to win the race, I would have to run 30, I would have to run, I'd have to be off the bike four minutes in front of him because he was running 30, 31 for 10K. Gee. But I'd give him a good run for his money a number of times, but he would catch me. I knew he was catching. I could see him coming. He was going to get me at 3 to 4K into a 10K run. Um, but yeah, it yeah, just I just I I could never match him, and I never was never was going to match him because of his build
1: and the and the, the genetics he was he was given by his parents. He was a genetic freak. He's quite amazing to um, I've seen old footage, and it's really he's quite amazing to watch, especially running. And been lucky enough to race against him in cross country races as well uh, when I was younger, and he was he was really just an a, amazing like, person to like a run. Gazelle. Him and, Tim and uh, Tim Bentley was the other one. Yeah, Timmy. You know, I, I nearly beat Timmy in a race. I, I he caught.
2: I, I started training with Greg, and uh, we used to do the Norline Waterworld series. And I was getting better and better and closer and closer. And the last race, I raced him out there. He caught me with twenty meters to go. But after that race, he rang Greg up the next week and started training with him. So and he <laughs> <laughs> he knew the he knew the value in, in jumping on board. So I used to train with Tim and Greg a lot. Do all my long rides with him, and uh, swim in a squad, and do do a lot of running with Greg as well. So he really got me going.
1: It would have been quite a. Um, I know Adam was with Greg at the start of his, but it would have been such an amazing group of Geelong athletes to be with, because I think there was Steve Bentley as well.
2: Just Steve was a very good athlete, and then you had Brett Ricconi that no one could keep up with. So most Olympic distance races, he was coming off the bike three minutes ahead of everyone. He was unbelievable. When we go out and train with him, you just try and just hang on to his back of his seat with your teeth. He was absolutely the the, the, the bike rider of that time in, in all forms and all people. He was, um, you know, the Brad Bevins, the Nick Crofts of the world couldn't keep up with him, but he couldn't run. Well, he – oh, yeah, first out of the water. Yeah. But, you know, you look at someone like Brett who could also run. Like he his best 10K was 34 minutes. But, yeah. but they were running 4 minutes faster than him and he could never hold them off. So if he if he had, had dropped a couple of minutes off his 10k they wouldn't have caught him. But still an amazing athlete, amazing athlete.
1: Yeah. And he was again part of that we spoke about this with Adam in the uh, the first podcast. Brett used to race in the twoies Blue as well. Yes, he did. Uh, I think yeah. Greg did as well, didn't he? Who? Greg did in the twoies Blue and the
2: and Timmy. Yeah. yeah, Timmy did probably more in that than Greg. Greg was um not so much in that, but uh, the old Timmy used to go in it all the time, and uh, Adam used to. Adam was the. Oh, sorry. Um, Riccini was the first one to put like the bloody camera on his helmet in that race, so you could actually watch the race from inside it. It was the very first <laughs> time. Yeah, it was pretty good. And they had that to his blue bowl. They used to do yes, the loop um, into the into the bowl and out of that. So
1: yeah, all right. As I was talking about this with Adam. Um, I used to sit there on a Saturday or a Sunday and you'd watch that for like just, it was amazing to watch. It was, it was bloody unbelievable. So um, uh, I think people should go back and see if they could find some footage of it. I think there is footage on YouTube somewhere. there ha- would have to be. Mm. But that so, was a,
2: that was the, the most, that's probably where Trifon started to really jump ahead. And people like Brad Bevan and um, Greg Welsh, they'll be they around. Well, I know Greg really well, I knew him from Hawaii when he was an idiot. And, a, and a, but a funny little bloke. But um, but I did know Greg that, uh, very well. And uh, then he, he got serious. He got very, very serious and cleaned up his act, became quite professional. And at that time forward, he became one of the best athletes, if not the best athlete, triathlete in the world.
1: Yeah, so uh, he won 94 Hawaii. Yep. Greg Walsh did. Um, again, an amazing run. Yeah. He had an amazing run. Old Dave
2: Scott was running him down, though. In that run, yeah. but but he'd had a he was way off the way out in front. Dave was never going to catch him, but he could run. He was a, he was a natural born runner. He could run thirty minute ten k without training. an incredible yeah, human being. Yeah.
1: And again, he was one of those athletes where he could go from that short distance, that two is blue short distance, all the way through to Ironman and be competitive at all of it where nowadays people really have to say, well, I'm going to do half Ironman or I'm going to be an Olympic distance race, it's very hard to now all the way through. Yeah, you can't have that multi-function, multi-distance. Now they're, they're specific.
2: They have to be. Mm. Competition's too good.
1: So let's get back to 1984, your mm. first time in Hawaii. Yep. Um, well, let's talk about the, your training for it to start off with when – did you decide you were going to go to the Hawaii Ironman and how did you hear about it? Because you only been around for probably
2: four or five years. I, um, I watched it on TV, saw Dave Scott win it and thought, I'm going to do that. So that was my foray. into. That was the reason behind what to go and do it. So I um, I don't even know. I had no program whatsoever. I used to go out the swimming pool in the morning and swim. I don't even know how many laps. I just used to swim whatever I'd swim. Uh, I used to ride my bike there, ride my bike home, ride my bike to work, ride my bike home from work. The longest ride I did was 80k, and I, I couldn't even tell you what I, how far I ran. I just used to run for the sake of running. Um, no, no program, no speed
1: work. This is a lot. This is a long time before Garmin and GPS watches. Well, and, well
2: everything doubt. we did was trial and error. So you had no science behind anything. You just, you know, and the old cliche of uh, more is better it was pretty much how training went back in those days, so we were the pioneers in the sport and um you know you, if If you came home and you felt okay, you would think well obviously i obviously haven 't done enough, so you 'd hit the road and go out and do some more until you got tired but you you know back then you you would, you knew if you had your time over again, you were just not recovering you you're absolutely caned. Yeah. So that was that was my uh, my first Ironman. I I, uh, I remember distinctly running uh, about a, about a k out of the um, finish line, and it was already dark. And someone said, "You're going to break twelve hours." <laughs> so, I, <laughs> so so I started to run a bit quicker, and I got in, got in eleven hours fifty nine minutes and fifty seconds or something. But you know, for what it was worth, it was and it was look for me, it was a very emotional thing. I didn't realise how much emotion was involved in doing something like that for your first race, but again, then after I finished that, went across the finishing line, I said, "I'm never going to fucking do one of those ever again." That hurt, and then the next the next <laughs> day, I said, "I'm going to beat that time, so I'm going to do it again." And uh, that was probably the 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 beginning of the end for me in triathlons, where I um I was hook line and sinker, and then I started training with people like Greg Stewart, Tim Bentley, Brett Ricchini, um started to pick their brains and then got competitive. I started competing against them and, and trying to beat them. Uh, and I then took on, uh, I, like Greg did, I joined the bike club. I raced bikes to get better at bike riding for my triathlons. I joined the swim squad.
1: Yeah.
2: I swam, I swam with um, Herb Jeffries, Jeff Edwards and then Peter Doak.
1: Uh, Doki was an Olympic Olympic swimmer. Yeah, bronze medal at the nineteen fifty six or sixty Olympics in yeah, the relay. When it was the sixty
2: Olympics, so I swam with him, yeah, in... and then I was running with the cross country club, training with Greg and and training with hardcore runners. So, as a result of that program, my uh, my times came down significantly, and I was legitimately fast. So, for an example, probably they used to do this the. Um, Frankston Long Course was a two k swim eighty bike and a twenty k run. My best time out there was three thirty five total, and I I rode a one fifty five for eighty, and ran a one thirteen for twenty off the bike. Cheapest, yeah. So I had, and Greg ran a one ten that day, so I wasn't that far off him. And that for me, that was probably the best run I've ever had. And that um, would have been a hard course too. Oh man, if, if you've if you've come out of the franks and up Oliver's Hill there, that we rode to, from there to to uh, Rye and back, and that first lot of hills out of there, and all the way out till we hit um, Safety Beach, where you hit the flat, and you rode round the water's edge, but you had a side wind buffeting you all the way, and you had to come back over those hills and then run out over them as same. That was a brutal course. Yeah, you just had hills all day, so it was a bloody tough race, but. Um, so, I had, I had a couple of really good races out there. I think I got third out, Rod, beat Rod Sodaro. And um, the only two in front of me were Brad Bevan and Nick Croft. So, I did have a good day.
1: You really are bringing out the old, <laughs> old school triathletes. Yes, uh, <laughs> it is. only a probably know who they all are.
2: Yeah, well, they were, you know they were good good athletes. They were, you know, yeah, they were amazing, amazing people, amazing athletes.
1: Uh, so, over your time, as we've talked about, you did. You've yeah, seen about 600 triathlons, but 21 Ironmans, which is still quite an amazing feat because a lot of our athletes in our group have just completed their first one last year. Some of them are going to complete their first one this year. Um, what was your favourite Ironman that you've done? I think Hawaii is the granddaddy. So that's, that's the pinnacle of what you can do
2: in Ironman. But I suppose probably because I'm, I'm a, I've come from that karate background, I love the Eastern culture. The um, I, I raced in an, uh, the Lake Biwa, the Ironman Japan, a phenomenal race. And how the Japs did it was just they just do it different. Um, I, I raced there, and I raced in miyakejima at Strongman, probably the Strongman. What's the Strongman? The Strongman was three k swim, hundred and fifty k bike, forty two k run. The reason it was those distances because the Japs couldn't swim a ride, but they could run. <laughs> So um, I, I did that race, but I was, I was actually on an Australian team. I was on the Japanese airlines team. They, they gave us equipment, um, uniform, airfares, accommodation and 500 bucks US when we landed, rolled out the red carpet, put us into limos, chucked our bike on trucks. Um, I got to know Paul Huddle very well, and um, his girlfriend was, uh, what was her name? Paul Anubi Fraser. Oh, so
1: yeah, the people have that, that one. Uh, <laughs> you yeah. won a couple of Iron mans overall. <laughs>
2: she was a she was pretty good, so I got to know them pretty well over <laughs> yeah. the years of racing over there, and I had a couple of good races myself there. So there in Lake Beer, I think I finished um, in top twenty, top twenty or twenty fifth in Lake Beerwa, and about fifteenth outright in uh, Strongman. So I um, the the favourite ones were probably that because of the cultural difference and the things that we did. We got we got taken out for dinners to these traditional Japanese restaurants down on sitting on tatami mats with the girls in the, the traditional dress serving us and, you know, we were, we were superstars back then. Well, I felt like it anyway, but sitting around in the, you know, going to primary schools, talking to kids and that was part of the deal that we did that and got paid for it, so... It was pretty special.
1: That's not a bad little bad little trip away for a race, that one.
2: Yeah, fantastic gig. So I did three of Miyakojima and three Lake Beer were all sponsored. Wow. Free
1: trips, yeah. and um, Very good. You've raced in Bali ten for 10 years as well. I know you like to go to Bali for a little trip yeah, every year. well,
2: very interesting. And to see the evolution of that race, but I reckon it took them 10 years to get it right. Because barley's barley, so you know they're talking about roads being closed. Yeah, bullshit. Uh, you, they're never closed. You, it's impossible to close them. So I end up in traffic jams. I got taken the wrong way in a race by the cops. I was leading the race, and uh, they didn't turn me around. The turn around, and I'm out in the middle of nowhere, thinking mm. this is not right. So I end up having to turn around. I'm trying to get them to stop. They just kept riding. I turned around. I ride back into the course, and there's. I see where they're all turned around, heading back into town. So, but I, I won that race twice outright, and I probably should have won it four times because I got taken the wrong way, and <laughs> the course was up to shit. But the, um, the the American dude that was running it, you know, he was um, I, even in the run. I, I ran out during training and found the two and a half k, the five k turnaround on the day. They didn't have a witches out, no one there. I thought, oh, maybe <laughs> that's wrong. So I keep running. I get to the three k mark. Then the four k mark, so now I'm going to be running eight k instead <laughs> of five. I turn around at four k and start running back, and I ran into the race director, and I said, "Mate, do you know that you got no one at the turn around at the two and a half k?" And he just dropped his head and went, "Fuck!" I told him. So he he gets on the phone and he's ringing people, and I said, "You know, all your five k fun runners are now running ten <laughs> and he's just he's just dropped his head in disbelief, and it was stinking hot. So, you've got all these people who can't run, they're running 10k. But, but it's a, it Bali's Bali. It, and right now, it's a really, really well run, run race. They have got it nailed. They've moved it out to Sanua so they can control the roads, they can close them. Um, and the run's fantastic. It's through the streets, and uh, the, the swim was great. The, the whole setup, the transit, it's very, very professionally run. So, but it's taken them a long time. But it's a great race to do, and they have a carbo party out on the beach, and very, very good race. And you know, people have been to Bali, yep. love it. They're beautiful people, but I don't think I'll be going back for a couple of no, years. No, I now. don't
1: think anyone will be. But I think it's something we could all look forward to, maybe in the future.
2: Yeah, look, it's a it's a worthwhile race to do. If any, you know, you, you could take people over and do a training camp there too. I can, I mean, I know all the roads and climbs, and there's some massive climbs. You know, forty k climbs up into Badougal and Kintamani's the volcano. That's about a thirty five k climb, and it is hard. Hint it, Adam, let's get, let's get that happening. Yeah, no, that would be good. <laughs> it'd be very good. I got a, and one of the Doyle brothers lives there, so we can tee him up to have a
1: car following with drinks oh. and shit in it. So we can we can organise all that. <laughs> so for over forty years, you've been competing. What is Let's talk about some of the things that you have seen change over these. Like we've just spoken about Bali and how that race has evolved yeah. over 10 years. You would have seen Hawaii evolve, evolve over 10 years, so 1984 to – where was your last trip to Hawaii? 207. 2007. So 207. Yeah, so we're looking at, you know, 23 years there. Have I done my maths wrong? No, I don't think I have. <laughs> no, yes, I have 23 no. years. 13 years.
2: No, 84 to 207. Oh yeah, sorry, yeah. Yes,
1: yes, yes. I'm with you, you're going the other way. Yeah, twenty three years. So you would've seen that involve massively. (coughs) And I've even for twenty years I've seen the sport involve massively.
2: Well, and Hawaii's one of those things is it's probably one of the lead races where at the um, expos and that there's all this new equipment comes online. Everything changes. So what I saw change was I, I rode a, a road bike with the cable brakes that come up over your handlebars and no tri bars, just standard wheels, you know, thirty-two spoked wheels, heavy old things, cross-spoked, um, tiny little twenty-four mil or thirty mil rims, and yeah, so no aero position, and then. Um, Couple of years of doing that. I think the third year the old funny bikes came out. Ken Evans was making the funny bikes, twenty-six inch front wheel, twenty-seven inch back, with the cow horn bars. So I was the first person in Geelong to get one of those bikes. Greg got his a week later, so we ordered them together and we rode them in Hawaii.
1: So for those still Ken no change. Sorry, for those of that out there that don't know, Ken Evans is a local bike builder. Um yeah. and a local cycling legend, really. So one two some, two. Yes. So um, I think I've got one of his bikes at home still too, actually one of his frames. An old Greg's old time trial frame actually.
0: Yeah,
2: I, I had one of Greg's old time trial frames too, the old steel things, the retro yeah. thing. I ended up selling that because it, it was all 26. But, yeah, so even then the the, the wheels didn't change and probably the, the, the change in our wheels were the next best thing after these average standard wheels were the Rovals. So they had reduced spokes. Bladed, uh, bladed spokes and radial um, built wheels. So they were, they were a good wheel in the day, you know, the, the sealed bearings. and um, uh, So those were in, in vogue for a couple of years and then they started, the, the disc wheels came onto the market but because they were so expensive, they had these plastic covers you could clip onto your back wheel. So they were sort of something you went with back in the day. Like a little fabric plastic thing you just
1: clipped yeah, on, But you can still get the other. Actually,
2: <laughs> yeah, well you can. They've they've come and gone, and they had uh, they had front wheels didn't change much. There was no deep dish, no, nothing like that. You just bought. You probably had the roval the front wheel. You know, light, um, pretty aerodynamic, and ran very smooth. So that was about as good as you were going to get back in a time. Um, and uh, the disc wheels were. You couldn't use them in Hawaii because you're getting blown off the road. It was too bloody windy, so they they um, they banned them at, at uh, very early in the stage. I did a Hawaiian Ironman in a wetsuit. Oh, really? That last yeah, that lasted one year because they found polystyrene foam all over the transition area. So someone had been putting this polystyrene foam into their wetsuit to float. <laughs> so that that ended that. We had it for one year. Um, I was probably... Myself and Greg Stewart were the first to develop the, the tri-suit. We, we designed the piping hot um, triathlon wetsuit. we i have got one of them at home too. Yeah, we tested that. We probably made a big mistake because we didn't patent it. It cost right. us millions of dollars now. So people stole it and went, went back to America and then there was a suit called Wavelength came out. They, they stole the idea off us and uh, they started developing it and selling it. But... In the first initial phase of the rollout of the piping hot, you'd go to a race and everyone have a piping hot triathlon wetsuit. Oh, wow. Yeah, it was bloody uh, surreal. And so we ended up in the, on the back cover of a triathlon magazine. It was myself, Greg uh Rowan Phillips, Stephen Foster, um, part of the advertising campaign. We were in that photo on the back of the, the triathlon magazine. So we tested it too. We actually did testing on it and we proved that it was – yeah, say over a kilometre, it was a minute faster. Wow! So we had that. We had the, the old um, steamer wetsuit with a zip up the front. We changed that to the back, changed the collar, cut the legs halfway up the calves, and had the short tank top thing, so you could get them off yeah. quick. So, and then they evolved from there. They went
1: from what they are then to what they are now. Which are uh, the wetsuits nowadays? From my, the evolution I've seen again is is quite massive. The flexibility in them and the, the material, phenomenal. And the old uh, the Zone Three Vanquish that I've got is just probably one of the best wetsuits I've ever swum in. Yeah,
2: like, they, have, they got the Yamamoto fabric. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah, more more little bubble holes in them to float. Yeah, and, it's all, and then it's all down to every little panel's a different mill. Yeah. Amazing. amazing. Where well, I go back to my first wetsuit, which was a piping hot one. It was yeah. a sleeveless. Um, Used to call it the big banana because I was a bigger, bigger child, yeah. (laughs) But it was was sleeveless, yeah. And it it was yeah. It's it's amazing how far and like you've spoken about the wheels and your bikes and time trial bars as well. Yeah, well, the old then
2: Greg went to America for uh, for a couple of years. He lived in um, Merced County, Merced City in California. I went over to I went over there and met him in Hawaii, and he got the. The um, the Speed Pedals, they made a set of those air wing handlebars and Scott Tinley got a set of those as well. So Scott Tinley and Greg were sponsored by this mob and gave him the bars. Well, he actually brought me a pair of those over and I met him in a way. I put those bars on and I was passing Gerard Donnelly and all those top triathletes in Australia. I passed them all on the bike. So <laughs> in, that, in that race, I came off the bike in the top 50. Which was, for me, wow. pretty, pretty good. Um, but I got run down. I ended up in the top 100. Um, so Greg bought me those guys. I went back to America with him and stayed with him over in, in Merced. We, we rode up to Yosemite and did some training over there. And then he pissed off over to Nice and raced against Mark Allen over there. I think he got his best race over there was fifth place. Yeah. And uh, so he was um, – but the, the drama with poor old Greg was it, he had to he had to race every weekend to live because
1: he needed to earn money, and that was the only way he could earn money. So he did it tough. The circuit over there, especially a lot more races. Though I think there was a lot more chance for them to go around to country races, especially in France. In yeah. America, would have been hard because it's such a big country. It is,
2: but you and know, some people like me and Greg and Timmy Bentley, and you know, probably we were born twenty years too early. If we had been born a bit you know, in the more later times when there was some money around and you can yes. go and race in Europe and then go to America and race. I probably would have won money myself. But, you know, we picked up sponsorship from a few people. We had uh, sponsorship from Rosebank Helmets. So they used to give us half a dozen helmets. And if we got our name in the paper, it was 100 bucks. If we got our picture in the paper, it was 200 bucks. And if you won a state or national title, it was 250 and 500 And which I, I won in police games. So I was picking up money. I gave us six helmets, so I'd sell <laughs> five of those. And um, and I was sponsored by Bike Power, so I was getting bikes and clothing and and I had a good sponsorship with Masashi, so I was getting bars, drinks, and all their product, like boxes of this stuff. I just had it. For, I reckon I had a sponsorship for a couple of years. So, wow! So I, and I'd, at that point too, like Greg, we'd we'd get rung up from race directors, and they'd ask me, Are "You coming up to the race this year?" And I go. Oh yeah, maybe. And they go, well, you have got free entry; we'll give you accommodation. So that was it was you could race cheap,
0: um, yes,
2: and get looked after, and then win money. So you know you'd win $250, 300 bucks into the bargain.
1: Yeah, and that would have been racing around the country, Victoria, and all that too, which is not as happening is not doesn't happen as much nowadays. Like the country races have really fallen over. Yeah, which is quite sad because. You know, getting in a car and driving somewhere to a race and then, you know, meeting people from around the state or around even Australia is one of the great things about the sport.
2: Well, it is, and it's a shame because I I travelled to a lot of these obscure places without a and I would have never have gone to them. So I end up going to those places and, and you would look around and go, this is a nice little place. So you get to travel and see as well as do a race. And that then in turn is a reason that I started travelling overseas and racing in the Police Olympics and the World Police and Fire Games because I started to travel over and see other countries and meet other people and meet other coppers from around the world.
1: Um, without that, without triathlons, I would never have done it. And let's, well, let's talk about that, your um, police games, You how many police games you've done a lot in Victoria and Australia for the police games, but you've just said that you travelled around the world. For that as well,
2: yeah, yeah. I, I travelled over to um, did numerous uh, trips to New Zealand, competed in Australia, New Zealand, police games. I uh, raced in uh, Washington DC, um, Birmingham, Alabama. I raced in Milwaukee. I competed over there in the World Cops on Bikes Challenge, which were, and we were the first um, uh, athletes from outside Australia to win that. myself and Jeff Bruff from Geelong that pissed the Yanks off. And um, so, yeah, so I raced in those games there, and uh, I, I raced in Canada in Edmonton in uh, oh can early the early nineties, and we had the World Police and Fire Games here in Australia uh, in Melbourne in '95. So we um, we had the opening ceremony at the MCG, and there were 60,000 oh, 60, wow. people there, and I had the honour of being the flag bearer for Victoria. And because it was in Victoria, we were the last team into the stadium and I led them in carrying the flag. I was pretty, oh, what a pretty, oh, Very, I was very, very chuffed and very honored to be asked to do that. So that was, That's amazing. That was awesome. And this, this opening ceremony was, you know, they the, the SOG roping in out of choppers. They had the fire, he's going up ladders. And it was just bloody unbelievable. so the Canadians were going to run it in Calgary the next year. They actually had to go and cancel yes. every plan that they had because they said they were never going to be able to meet what we did. And they had to replan the whole <laughs> lot to um, get themselves up to standard. They were blown away with
1: it. So it was fantastic games. Which is a great thing for well, Victoria and the, the organising committee for that, too. Well, so. we're very lucky that you know, Victoria is probably the sporting capital of, the, of Australia. Yeah, yeah, we are. And we've had some, you know, great, great events in Victoria. And it's sad that we don't have an I-Man here anymore. Yes. And we only have one one half I-Man. Yeah.
2: Well, there's a fellow uh, a, a good athlete, but he turned a race director was by the name of Ralph Islet. And he ran that strongman down there at Torquay for three years in a row. And uh, it was sponsored by um, JL, like the Japs paid for it all. Frank ran it. They ran three of them. Um that year, that race was the only race that I... I come second in one of them. I should have won it. I did the um, Frankston half two weeks before it. I beat Robin Tullett by 10 minutes. I went too hard, and that was my first foray into learning, how, learning about taper. I didn't taper properly. I hit that race tired, and Robin ended up beating me by half an hour. He broke nine hours, and I should have broke nine hours and beaten him. I was, and I, wow. and I reckon that was that yeah. was the only chance that I've ever had where I was going to win a an nine man and break nine hours, and I blew it, and I'm filthy on myself. Shit. But yeah, there was three three races down here. It'd be lovely to have him, another one down here, run around that coastal area somewhere. It would it would be
1: magic. Yeah, and. I think that's where I know we're just going to that Cadell Evans race It showcases the surf coast, but I think if we could get some sort of the media coverage of these events, which has dropped off probably in the last 10 years, yeah, um, you could really, like cycling, you could actually push the region really well. You could, and what it does is, you know, people
2: like Adam to start running programs, there's nothing better to be able to train where the race is going to be. Um to train on the course and then sleep in your own bed the night before and get
1: up and go and do the race. No, there's nothing better than that yeah. sleeping in your own bed the night before. a race. <laughs> you don't have to travel and you don't have to cost cost bloody gazillions to get there. We're going to move on to the last little section of this podcast. Something I'd like to talk to you about is you're a very generous man, but you've done lots of things. Um and one of them is your your big rides you've done over in America. Yeah,
2: yeah, we did the uh, the the pedal. We did the tour of duty ride. So I um, there was a, there was an email come out with the AFP calling for people if they wanted to go in it. So I thought it was going to be competitive. I threw my hand in, and there was six or seven people apply, but it turned out people pulled out for whatever reason. It was down to two of us, and then poor old Frank, the other dude who was going to go in it, he went over the handlebars two weeks out, busted his collarbone. So it was only me. So I, yeah. I represented the AFP. We went over there. We had coppers from Northern Territory and South Australia who also went. We had four military, four fireys and four coppers and America had the same. So there was 24 of us started in San Diego. We did two days in there, lots of prep. We had two motorhomes sponsored by um, Jayco. Uh, we rode from San Diego through 16 states and 26 cities um, and ended up uh, finishing on 9-11 in New York. So we hit hit New York on 9-11 to attend a number of memorials, um, which were – and that ride was just – I don't know how to even explain it. It was probably one of the best things I've ever done. So we rode 4,000 kilometres in 28 days, and we ended up staying four days in New York and attended a few of these memorials and a few of the firehouses, and listening to the stories that were over there was just – not only amazing but heart wrenching, you know. So we we honoured the the people who have died and got injured in the uh, wars in uh, Iraq and Afghanistan, and the, the the fallen in New York who were the police, the fireys, and the port of authority. So it was uh, it was pretty emotional, you know, doing that stuff. We ended up doing our own memorial in Shanksville, where the the, the passengers attacked them to try and stop them. That plane was going to fly into the to the White House, the passengers yes. jumped on board and they tried to get into the cockpit and that ended up crashing in Shanksville. So we went to the, the area there where it crashed and they had a memorial set up. That was pretty bloody, pretty good. Um, yeah, we did, we just did some phenomenal stuff. Every city we went into, we had the cops, lights and sirens, shutting roads down. We were riding into the cities to brass bands and, and the local mayors and... Um, the local community providing us with food. We did a, we rode into Las Vegas. They shut down the strip. We rode in with a, with a police car in front, a fire truck at the back. We rode all the way down to Fremont Street and they took photos of us yep. and our headshots were rolling through the roof in, in the pavilion down there. It was just, I couldn't, I couldn't explain that everywhere we went, we were just like bloody rock stars. It was amazing. So, well, and, and when we went into New York, they actually shut the Washington Bridge. It's got five, six lanes of traffic both ways. We rode down Broadway under lights and sirens. We rode into Central Park, lights and sirens. They just pushed cars off the road. Then we rode from Central Park down onto the what? Hudson River and we finished the ride at the yep. um, USS Intrepid, which is a big aircraft carrier there down on the. And we had media from other countries. So I had a Japanese reporter interview me. Down there. We started on the um, on the midway in San Diego. We finished at the Intrepid in New York. It was just I don't know how to explain. It, it was amazing. What a ride. Yeah. It was a ride. We had a we even had a, a special uh, box at the Ridley Park in Chicago. So we got free tickets to the the White Sox, is it? White Sox or the the Cubs? Cubs. Cubs. The Cubs, yeah, Chicago Cubs. So we got this special little thing that was we we had this grandstand to ourselves. Um, beer, drinks, food all day. Uh, we we went to a special function that night and that Alex Rizzo who plays with him, they just signed him up for twenty five <laughs> mil. And we he came to this very private party we went to. Uh, he walked up to us and said, You blokes are amazing. And we just went, mate, you're not too bad yourself <laughs> and he goes, No, no, no And we said, Could we get a photo with you? And he goes, Yeah, 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 come over, we'll get a photo. And he's he's still playing now. I like think he's he's changed um, baseball teams, but he was twenty five mil, you know, fucking sign on, and a and a champion bloke. Yeah, yeah, amazing. So you know, it just I could. There were so many things we did on that. I just you couldn't, you wouldn't be able to do that in ten trips. Like you'd have to do ten American trips to do what we do. We did it in one go, but it was tough. You know, we went through. The Mojave Desert. It was 115, 120 degrees. We had days when we got pissed on and frozen. You know, we rode over over mountain passes. We rode into Colorado, up altitude there. We had days in there. Yeah, it just, it just went on and on. They provided us with bikes. We had our uniforms provided. Bikes were writing for us. We had mechanics to set us up at the start. And um, we had a we had an opportunity to buy the bikes at the end. I didn't. I'm kicking myself, I should have. I just would have hung it up in the garage. It was just one of those. It wasn't that much either. I don't even know why I didn't buy it. It was just dumb. I should have bought it. <laughs> I was probably the only one that didn't. You know? <laughs> but I've still got. I got a. I got me um, road front road jumper framed, and I got everyone that was on that trip to sign it. Yeah. So I've got a lot of good memories. Johnny Howard was our patron. Oh, he launched he launched that in Sydney. Yes. And he signed signed one of the brochures for me. Uh, so I've got that in this. I've got it. Um, framed as well so it's just you know uh, kim beasley met us in san diego he was the uh he was the diplomat in washington so he flew from washington to san diego he launched the ride and said when you get to washington we'll have a official function which he lived up to so we parked the two motorhomes up on the footpath in washington (laughs) and and he put on an official function at the um Australian Embassy, so they just they just did so much for us. It was we ended up in Durango too, so the tour of California started there. Yes. So, so Phil Liggett and Paul Sherman were, were patrons as well, so they come and met us when we arrived. So we went out drinking and dancing with those two one night. <laughs> they they were um, they actually said, "What are you blokes doing tonight?" They actually had to go to an official function to launch. Yes, we had a photo taken with with uh, BMC. Spoke to Cadell and uh, they said, listen, we'll we'll come out with you blokes tonight. Where are you going to be at such and such a time? We gave them the name of the bar and they turned up. So we're there about two in the morning. These two blokes were dancing with girls and drinking. And... <laughs> so I got to know Phil Liggett really well. Um, when he came to Geelong, I took him down to the police station, kidded him up with a gun and got him firing shotguns and pistols and <laughs> uh, he, i got photos with him he uh, photos with him with the guns and he just loved it he was a he's a ripping bloke and i've run into him in in france i was over there for uh when Cadell won the tour i ran into him i ran into Phil Phil in grenoble and i was having a chat to him so i've, I've run into him everywhere same with durango and we rode it we did a people's ride there we took off and but we had to turn around because we had to jump on the bus and go somewhere to drive to start to our first start of our ride. So uh, it was bloody just didn't stop. I don't know, so many good things. Um, J.K. put on a massive function for us. Just
1: everywhere we went, that's that's just such an. You've been lucky to have that opportunity to go and do it, and I think some people they look at something like that and you go, oh, hang on, I don't know if I should do it. But just I think just jump at the chance to go and have that opportunity and the way you speak about it, I want to go and do
2: it. Yeah, so with Adam's group, you know, and I can only probably use them as more as an example, that if, if you're presented with an opportunity and it doesn't matter what it is, whether it's work, you know, relationships or, or racing, you should really set yourself a goal. So I look at, um, I look at life in a triangle and the Three sides of that triangle need to be the same length. It needs to be balanced. So if one of those is out out of whack, then it'll have an effect on the other thing. So if something at work's not travelling well, it'll affect your home. If home's not going well, it'll affect work and and your training. So the third side of the triangle, you've got two of them, one's work, one's, one's home, family. The third is whether you're religious, music, race, train, you've got to have that part of that triangle balanced in that area to supplement the other two so that you've got a really balanced life. And without that, with if one plays up, it'll affect the other. So that's, that's why, you know, these people need to just, um, you know, grasp that and make sure that if these opportunities come up and in our little world and their world, it's all these racing bits and pieces,
1: challenge yourself, opportunity, take it. That's great advice. So I think the same, I think, especially with the year we've had, You've just got to grab every chance you, you can get. It doesn't matter what it is. You never know. I will never say no to anything because you'll never know what you're going to do or go and see. And I've met some amazing people and been to amazing places because I've just said, yes, let's just go and do it. Or yeah, we'll think about the consequences tomorrow.
2: Well, I, you know, in this trip over America, I initially said to my wife, let's, look, this is going to cost me some money. And she basically said, don't worry about the money. Yeah, we'll, we'll fix that up. And uh, and straight away I went. You know what? She's right. You know, I look at myself now. I'm, I'm approaching 65 years of age. I, I look at this life of mine. I've, I'm into the last quarter of the big game. You know, the, the last quarter <laughs> of the footy match. So I don't have a lot left, and I still want to. There's still a lot of boxes to tick, um, and I just want to. I, and I, I love training with Adam. I love the people he has there. I love joining in, and it, it's it's. If you don't have a goal or something, some people to train with, you'll never ever train as hard by yourself as you will with a group. You'll always motivate, and that becomes a motivation as well and enjoyment. You know, you can see the friendships that are formed there already. The people love the contact, the human element, and you need that for that um, to be able to reach your peak or your best performance in whatever you desire to do in that sport
1: in a given time. But you've also got someone to share it with as well. Yeah. And I think that's the best thing about, again, the team or that team environment is, you know, you've had a great day, but if you're doing it by yourself and you've got no one to share it with where uh, at Beckworth we've got someone you can go, oh, blah, 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 I can talk about it. And... Look, and triathlon, triathlon by and large can be a
2: very selfish sport, but being with the Beckwith, Beck, well, the Beckworth group takes that element out of it. Because you roll up the train and ten minutes before you have a chat, you have a stretch, you go for a little warm up run together, so that team element is back in there. But without that, yeah. if you're training by yourself and you're getting programs written and you're out slugging it out down the Great Ocean Road by yourself week in week out, it's it's bloody tough training. In the middle of winter trying to train for an Ironman in summer, um, it's just a, it's no good. But you will do it with people. You will do bigger rides and longer runs with someone and you will by
1: yourself you'll always look for an excuse to say i'm not doing it and yeah and you always learn from other people too this i think again by yourself you're not learning but if you like talking to you yourself or this you know kim or you know those people who have been around the sport for a little a long time you'll you'll learn something from them but people that are new to the sport you can learn things from them as well absolutely yeah
2: and it's not just
1: about triathlon it's about bloody life
0: you know correct you know
2: there's some amazing people that you don't even know about until you get to talk to him, you go, oh, oh, really? Like probably a good example I could use is, is Kate Thompson, you know, where she's come from yeah. as, a, as a netballer, an international netballer. And yeah. then for her to jump in and do this, it's like she's got a lot to offer and, and she's a bubbling, happy um, person who never, ever stops laughing. She makes you happy. No, and she's happy to have a child. Absolutely. She's got no airs and grosses. She'll talk to anyone. So you need them people around, but but then when you go into the underlying bits and pieces of her life and you look at it and go, Man, she's been a gun athlete. But she's decided yeah. to do something different and, and another challenge in her life. And and um, you know, she's looking at another job opportunity somewhere.
0: Yeah. Hmm.
1: That's right. So, and that's kind of led perfectly into the uh the last section of this little chat, Mick, um, you've done lots and lots of things in your life. What is the one thing that you would still love to achieve? Like you've spoken about you've got boxes of tick, you're in the final, you know, the final quarter of your life, yeah. which I think is a great analogy. Yeah, the final quarter of the footy match, yeah. Ten yeah. minutes in um, you've, yeah, you've had the premiership quarter, so you're hopefully you're in front by now.
2: But... Uh, but the. the the box to tick is probably been a bit delayed and this covid's screwed everyone so there's things that, that yeah. you know we had trips lined up this year but i suppose probably something that i'd really like to do is get to europe and do do some a really good part of europe and have a look at the joint in italy france and uh, yeah, a couple of other countries in and around that area that's been a, a big tick in the box but um we were planning maybe to go next year, but the way this COVID's going, I go, I don't think I don't even know if we'll go. Um, you know, with France having ten thousand infections yesterday, it's just we're gonna until I get yes. a vaccine, we're gonna be screwed. So but yeah. I suppose another another little one underlying that is I'd probably want to go do one more Hawaii. I don't know when how to, well, to get the ten. I'll get the ten and it all depends how many legs are going i 'cause I've I've just I've sort of broken down a fair bit in recent years and there's little niggles a bit of a sore knee here and there but um you know it's not off the books so something like that would be be well, awesome and I know hopefully that if I do go I'll be able to go over with a group of Beckworth athletes and
1: well I know a few of us are trying to qualify for next yeah. year so the idea, I think, there was a few of was going to try and qualify for this year, but I think next year could be the go. Or again, depends yeah. on COVID. Well, that'll be me. that be sixty-five um,
2: then. So it was that was the plan: is to go into that next age group and maybe maybe do yeah. it then. And my my <laughs> uh, my daughter wants more. Well, my daughters want to go back. They come over and saw me do one. There's a few other mates have said if you're going, ring. Let us know because we're coming. So it would be, be great. And to I think
1: a big group over it makes it. Makes it such a great career. Oh,
2: yeah. I mean, you, look—you just you don't you know, you, you know that you're not going to hurt just for yourself. You want to hurt for the people around you who've, who've supported you as well, and that includes your your, yes. your training
1: teammates. Well, you heard it here first on Gossip Podcast. Mick Varkar going for 2021 Hawaii <laughs> number ten. Yeah, no, it <laughs> is a goal. I want to really do that.
2: That's
1: yeah. uh, a great goal, and I think the goal of still going to um, Europe. And doing those countries is still achievable. Doesn't matter how old you are.
2: No, we did a we did a um, we did a te- uh, a sample cruise last year, but after this thing, I will never go on a cruise ever. <laughs> they they <laughs> are putrid dishes. I'll never do one ever again. I'll never jump on a boat after the Ruby Princess.
1: I can stick uh-huh. it up their ass. I won't be going. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, I just, oh, I'm not a big cruise person either. For some people, they can go and well, do it. You, you're
2: yes, probably of, like me. You want your feet on the ground, you want to be on a bike, and you want to be off and running and swimming and riding. And you
1: can't. Yeah, and I want to be able to
2: move yeah, around. you're locked in there, and it's, yeah, I couldn't do it. Two weeks on a boat, couldn't do it. I'd end up diving off and swimming somewhere.
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh, perfect, Mick. Thank you so much for allowing us to have this opportunity to hear about your life and the journey, and not just about your triathlon life, but everything else that goes on around it. We probably could speak for hours, um, but... We could, and I could write three books, but um, yeah, one day I might write one. Yeah, that'd be... I, I would actually buy one and read it, Mix so there's a... <laughs> <laughs> well, if I sell
2: one book, it'd be good.
1: Yeah. Yeah, but, like I've
2: stacked, I've stacked enough in for two life. You know, what I could do, you, you couldn't put into two life, so... I can only say that um, I'm happy with what I've done and if
1: I died tomorrow, I, I couldn't be sad. And that's that's the thing. You've got to grab it. every opportunity you can because you never know what's going to happen tomorrow. Exactly. And you'll know when you're 65. <laughs> <laughs> oh, too not, that, not that far away. <laughs> no, <laughs> no. Either's Adam. <laughs> oh, no, he's, he's getting enough grey hairs, isn't he? Yeah. He looks like a bloody uh, Bear grills with that beard. <laughs> That's a perfect ending there. Thanks, Mick. Thank you very much.
2: No, thank you, mate. It was an honour. And I'll see you in the traps in the pool and the running and riding
0: soon. You will
2: do. Good luck, mate.
0: Thanks for listening to the Gossip Podcast with your host, Anthony Goss. For more great episodes, please visit our website, www.beckworthracing.com. And remember, in the great words of Coach Goss, Do something!